Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. Twenty twenty two was a year at the bridge that I can't I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I was sitting in bed last night at the wee hour of ten o'clock because where are my early people at, right? Like Riley was in bed at two thirty. Meg and I were in bed at eight thirty. Come on, somebody. It was awesome. We were watching movies, we were in our pajamas. She was lights out by ten thirty. It was awesome. But you know, I was sitting in bed last night just kind of reflecting about twenty twenty two. And I literally can't wrap my head around just what God did in individual lives. Um, lives were changed. It was just such a cool thing. And here's, here's what I was sharing with our team this morning. When you have a really good year, sometimes you go, how in the world is that going to happen again? Like, how could we possibly echo what 2022 was? But here's where things are different when God's in the picture. The best is yet to come, right? Like, I love that song called Do It Again because we've seen God move. And I believe we're going to see him do it again in individual lives, in our community. I'm already preaching. I'm not even started yet. So I'm just excited for 2023. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. I'm just, I'm just, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And so uh, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for getting up early and just being here for what's going on. Um, it's just going to be a really, really fun day today. I'm, I'm convinced of that. But um, I got to say, as a parent of an elementary schooler, uh, it's kind of a wild ride in a lot of different ways. One of the ones I've experienced as of late is um, I've almost kind of had a bunch of nostalgia rush in as as my son has gone through elementary school. So we went through the orientation day and we saw like the little tables and little chairs. It kind of like just brought back a whole bunch of memories of when I was in elementary school. And so I was thinking about that this last week as I kind of prepared for this message because when I was in elementary school, there was always a point in the day that, like, every single kid looked forward to, like, could not wait for, and it was game time. There was always a time in the day when kids were released to just have some free time, play some board games. And I've got to tell you, for an elementary classroom, this time was violent. It was violent because as soon as the teacher relinquished us to go play games, it was like an all-out brawl for the game corner. Like it was like Black Friday on steroids where everyone was just rushing to get the game because there were certain games that were way more fun than other games. And I mean way more fun. Like there are some actual fun games and there's like those learning games of like, cool, let's match the star with the star. Fun, right? Like that's no fun. But I've realized as I looked back on those times, there was like a hierarchy of different games. And so if you were too slow off the draw, if the teacher said, hey, you're good to go, and you kind of just like finish your work and put your stuff in your desk like a good little student. Um, it was one of those things where like it was, it was crazy time. And so Monica just stepped in here. If there's any kids that want to go with our kids team, you are more than welcome to go that way. They have way more fun than we have in here, but she's awesome. But hey, um, when we were doing these games, if you were slow on the draw and you were one of those students who did not get a good start, you were relinquished to what I call the bottom tier games. These are the games that like nobody wanted, but you grabbed purely out of reluctance. And the first one was chess. Okay, in elementary school, if you were in, if you liked chess, one, you were a future genius, and you just liked stretching your mind. Two, uh, you have no idea what you're doing, but you just kind of like start moving the pieces around because 
The very, very similar game, although a little easier, but this would also be in the bottom tier, was Checkers. Do I have any Checkers enthusiasts out there? A few of us. Checkers is a good game. It's super fun. It was one of the first games I chose. But when you're in elementary school, Checkers is boring. It just is. It's, it's just like a bunch of colors, and there's really no pizzazz to it. You just do one of these kind of guys. So when you're in first grade, kindergarten, you have no patience for that. Checkers, you're like, forget about it. A very, very similar game, same concept, that all the kids hated when I was in elementary school was a little game called Mastermind. Any fans of Mastermind in here? Two of us. That seems about right. Like, Mastermind was one of those games where it's like, you really, really love it, or you could care less about it. Like, there's really no in-between. It's one of the two. But as a kid, you have no idea how to play this game. No clue. And so, like, the teachers try to explain it, no dice. But there was one game in this pile that I'm going to put in the lower tier only because of the fact that it was always missing pieces. If it had the right pieces, this is a top-level game. A game I would dare say, I would play this afternoon if I had it, all right? I would. And we might be going to Walmart after this sermon. I'm, I just decided that. Because this game is an all-time great. Hungry Hungry Hippos is a great game. It's so fun. I once played it youth version, so I got like those little rolling scooters that you see in gym class, and I had students lay on their chest, and another student grabs their feet, and then we had a bunch of balls in this, in this room. It was, it was organized chaos. It was awesome. So Hungry Hungry Hippos is a great game, but in elementary school, there was like three balls in the whole set because they always got lost. So it's like, each person gets one, and that's the game. So this was always kind of relinquished. But now I want to transition to these are the games that you had to be quick. When the teacher, it was kind of, you kind of knew they were getting ready. You kind of were like slowly putting your stuff into your desk, getting ready to, to run to the game cabinet as soon as you could. And when you got there, you had a bunch of different options. I'm going to go through these a little, a little quicker. But these are what I would call games that were desirable, all right? First one, Hi-Ho Cherio. Great game. Super, super good game. The cherries got lost a bunch, but there was, there was nothing quite like jumping into a game of Hi-Ho Cherio. An instant classic that was also really good was Candyland. I replayed it with Meg a year and a half ago. The simplicity of it is kind of crazy. I forgot how simple it is. It's literally just drawing cards. Cool. But it was so fun as a kid because you saw all the different candy. And it's just one of those games that just makes you feel good when you play it. There's no strategy. There's, it's all luck. And so it just kind of makes you feel good or makes you want to punch a hole in the wall. It's either one of the two. This game was my all-time favorite. And when I even thought about it today, it just triggered a part of my nostalgia I didn't forgot was there. But this next game was top notch. Shoots and ladders. This game, this is like the older version. This game was so fun because when you hit one of those slides, you felt like you could fly. Like you felt like you were on top of the world because it was so, so fun. I got two more games and then the, there was always one game at the top of the shelf that was the best of the whole thing. But two more to go. My son got this for Christmas this year. The next one is Don't Break the Ice. You have that little hammer, and you're so delicate, right? Like when you're playing Jenga, like. And then the whole bottom falls out. Oh, gosh. Like you're super, super upset. 
super fun game. And then the last one, this was always kind of the second to last to go, but it always took a little bit of time, so you had to play it fast. And that was the instant classic of Battleship. This is still a great game. And to this day, I get, um, you know, the iPhone has their version of it, right, where you can, like, play the games between different iPhones if you have an iPhone. Uh, my favorite is when I get that from students in the middle of the school day. It's like, I want to play with you, but am I, am I engaged? Would your parents be upset with me if we knew we were playing Battleship in the middle of your school day, but we still play because that's how I roll. The last game, when I say that I'm convinced there was all out fist fights for this game, there's a bit of an exaggeration, but at the same time, not really, because people raced for this game because this was the best game. Now, if you wanted to secure this game, you had to be smart because it's a two-player game. So you had to kind of like strategize and, and pre-game to get this thing. So like you find your partner, whichever partner is closest to the game cabinet. It almost like, when I say like this game was desired, it was like, like literally people ran after it. They were crazy for it because it was such a good game. And that game was, guess who? This game was seriously so fun because as an elementary student, you knew how to play it. You understood the concept. Like it was just, it was such a great game. When I say this was the hottest commodity of my school, I mean it. Like the only thing above this in the whole school is the double stuff Oreos. Beyond that, there was nothing more valuable in the whole building than this game of guess who, at least in this mind of the students. Teachers would talk about school supplies or equipment. Not so much here. We were in it for the Oreos and the guess who, and all the rest was just gravy. But if you're unfamiliar with this game, basically each player gets a board with all these different flaps on it. They all flip up, and each flap has a picture of a character and a name. And so the whole purpose of the game is each person is, is, it has to draw a card, and that is their person. So then the other person has to guess it. You guys have played this game. I don't need to explain it. You know what this game is all about. And it was so fun, and I've got to tell you, I was so bad at it. Like, I loved playing it, but I was absolutely horrendous at it because I try to get too specific too fast. Like, hey, is your character wearing blue? Nope. Like, one, one flap right off the get-go. I was so bad at it because you have to kind of figure out the strategy to it. You kind of have to start broad, right, and then get more specific. Is it of male? Nope. Okay, there goes half the board. Is it a female? Yep, perfect. You have all these different things that go along with it. But I was so bad at it. But the reason I kept coming back to it is because when you found that one person and you nailed it, it was liberating. It felt like you won the lottery. Like, it was, it was, it was awesome. Like, there was such a camaraderie that went along with it. And so when I was thinking about guess who, when I was just kind of like reliving memory lane in my office like a little nerd this week, it was, it was so fun just remembering that, like how exciting it was to kind of discover like, oh, I got you. I know who the person is that I have been looking for. And that whole concept of kind of finding that person is something I want to talk about here today and for the next few weeks because when you're in youth ministry, and when I was in youth ministry for five years or so, there was always one topic, one area that you could always talk about that was always money. It was always just perfect. You can, it was always really, really relevant. The kids loved it. It was, it was practical. It was fruitful. All these good things that we talk about, there was one topic that you could always go back to the well on, 
and it would always be a good one. And that was the idea of identity. Like, what is your identity? Because as a youth student, and that age of 12 to 18, that's at the forefront of their brains all the time. They might not acknowledge that. They might not say, oh, yeah, I'm always thinking about it. But there's this idea of who am I? Like, who am I going to become? What's going to become of my life? What am I going to do when I get out of high school? What do I want to be? You have all these questions when you're between 12 and 18 that are just rolling through your head, and they all come back to this idea of identity. What my life is going to mean, where I'm going to go, who I'm going to be with all of these different things. And so you can talk about it as a youth pastor because we, we know that identity is super important. Knowing who you are is super important. So as a youth pastor, you can kind of instill these good values and these good things in them to make them good people. But I don't think that, although it happens, we'd stop talking about identity after kids got out of high school. Because there's this assumption that as soon as you graduate high school, as soon as you're 18 years old and you go into your adult life, you kind of figure out who you are. And so the adults in the room, you understand kind of how this goes. You know who you are. You have the titles in your jobs. You have the roles, whether that's parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever it is. You have all of these things. You have the things in your life that you do day in and day out that make you who you are. But I think what happens is sometimes we realize that maybe we don't have an exact grasp on who we are. Because you have a really good idea of who you are, what your life looks like, what is coming of your life, until all of a sudden something happens that you don't expect. You do something that surprises you. You lash out. You do something, and you're thinking, where did that come from? Who am I right now? We have all of these things that happen, and it calls back into question, who am I? Matthew chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is like, in my estimation, this is one of the most obscure and kind of surprising moments that Jesus has just before he jumps into what they call his ministry, his time where he went around and healed people and did things. Because Jesus walks up to the Jordan River where they did all these baptisms. And Jesus walks up to John the Baptist, the guy who always is baptizing people, and he basically says, hey, John, I want you to baptize me. And John refuses. He's like, uh, What? <laughs> You're Jesus. Like, if anything, you should be baptizing me. Why in the world do you want me to baptize you? But Jesus sternly and compassionately basically says, like, this is how it's supposed to be. Baptize me, please. So if you're one of the ones that were happened to be standing by for this whole thing, Jesus and John walk into the water. John kind of grabs it. If you've seen baptisms here at the bridge, we do the same kind of concept. But they walk down. And so as Jesus goes into the water, and comes back out as soon as that happens. It says the heavens open, which basically means the sky kind of opens, and there is this big light that comes down. Like the, the light of heaven, it says the glory of the Lord is alighting on him. The dove comes down to basically symbolically represent the fact that God was basically entrusting him with the Holy Spirit. But here's what I really want to focus on, because I think a lot of times we kind of wish this would happen in our life. Did you catch that it says God spoke? This is like an audibly speaking. This, a lot of the experts agree that 
This was kind of a moment where God speaks to Jesus in front of everybody to the point where everyone else around him could, could hear it. This is not like an internal thing. Like, I feel like God spoke to me. Like, no, this was like a audible, God spoke out loud and other people could hear him. And what did he say? This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And so I've heard this story for years and years and years. And it was always kind of like a cool story and something you kind of just accept as fact. But in the last year and a half, as I've read this story a few different times, there was something that just kind of like stuck out to me, something I didn't quite grasp. Jesus knows who he is. He knows who he is. He was put on this earth before the creation of the world. First Peter 1 says that, that before the creation of the world, Jesus was born. So he knows who he is. And so as John is, as he basically goes up to John the Baptist and says, baptize me, John says, no, uh, I should be baptizing, or you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, we have to do this to fulfill righteousness, which to me says, Jesus knew he was the son of God. He knew that he was the Messiah. He knew exactly who he was. So it's always kind of surprised me. It's always kind of just been one of those things that didn't make sense to me that God comes down and says, hey, everybody, this is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. This is good. Everybody knew that already. Everybody, including Jesus himself, knew exactly who he was, exactly what he came to do. They, they knew it. I found it so interesting that God, in his one moment to speak, says, this is my son. It'd just be so weird, wouldn't it? Like, can you imagine when we delivered our first kid in the hospital, I grabbed Ellis like, like Mufasa does in Lion King. Hey, everybody, this is my son. Like, they know, right? Like, they, they were there. They, they witnessed the whole thing. They know full well that, like, yeah, that's probably the dad right there. So where does this whole situation come into play? Why is this whole, it's never quite clicked with me until recently. Because when, when God says, hey, this is my son whom I'm well pleased with, whom I love, I'm well pleased with him, that's in chapter 3, verse 17. You flip the page, the very next verse of the Bible starts chapter 4. So as soon as this baptism happens, this next chapter picks up in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus, right after baptism, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You don't say. You don't eat for 40 days. Of course you're hungry. Of course you are starving. But like, what so surprises me, as soon as Jesus gets out of the water, he dries off, he's good to go. The very next thing that happens is the Holy Spirit, God himself, leads Jesus into the wilderness. Now, being from Minnesota, when you hear wilderness, you think of like woods and trees and pine sap and all this good stuff. The Israeli wilderness, little different. They call it the wilderness because it's hot, it's barren, it's a desert. There is nobody, nothing. You are just in the elements, in the conditions by yourself. So not only that, but he's not without food for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The food alone 
would have to be intense. Because I know, just personally speaking, in the mom household, I'm not going to talk about who, perhaps, but there is someone when they don't have proper food, they get a little testy, a little upset, a little aggravated. And the person in, in, in question is not over two feet tall, okay? Parker, when she doesn't get her food, I fear for my life because she screams bloody murder and it is nasty. And the second worst person in the house is me. So I know when you're hungry and you need food, everything bothers you. Everything bothers you so bad. So God, Jesus was without food for 40 days and here comes Satan to mess with him. Like he's in the wilderness by himself, all these things. And so the very next verse, verse three, chapter four, here comes the devil. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Logical explanation when you're without food. But Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, way above everything else around. This was at the very top of a hill. This was a tall cliff, essentially. And he says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. I don't know if you noticed the theme here, but it's something that is very strategic, something that is very intense. There's something that the enemy says every single time. He tempts him with something. If you are the son of God, prove it. Prove it. Make these rocks into rolls. Jump. The angels are supposed to catch you, right? If you're really the son of God, if you really are the Messiah, prove it. We do this all of time, all the time. That if statement is us verbally expressing, we don't believe what you're saying do this all the time. If you're so smart, prove it, right? If you've got such a good idea, do it. If you're Santa Claus, then what song did I sing for you on your birthday last year? I was hoping there were some elf fans in the room or that would have been a really bad joke. But no, we do this all the time. When we say if, we are basically saying to that person, I don't believe what you're saying. Because if I'm going to believe you, you got to show me proof. you got to show me that what you're claiming is actually true. So it was about six months ago. I've heard this story all the time. I've, I've heard Jesus being baptized. I've heard him going to the wilderness. I've heard this, but it was six months ago that that if was just like a beacon in my Bible as I was reading it because I never caught it. Satan is saying, if you're the son of God, he says it twice, back to back. But here's what just really, really is is interesting. Satan knew who Jesus was. How do I know that? 
Because if you read in the other part of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any of those four books, you find that Jesus is walking around, doing his thing, and he'll run into people who are being tormented by demons. And so he'll walk up to them and exercise them and get them out of there. But every single time Jesus walks up to those people, the demons know who Jesus is. And they shudder because they know that he's got way more power than they do. So if his little stinking spawns know who he is, why in the world do we think that Satan doesn't know exactly who Jesus is, knows exactly who he is, what he came to do, and what his significance on earth means for the enemy? He knows exactly who he's dealing with, which is why he says, if you're the son of God. When he balks, if you're the son of God, he's not doubting that Jesus is really the son of God. What he's trying to do is make Jesus question that. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt not only that he's the son of God, but that his father is going to take care of him. When I read this and I really break this down and think about it and and let the actual part of the text speak for itself, what Satan is trying to do, he's trying to say, hey, buddy, um, if you're God's son, wouldn't God want to give you some bread? Once he protects you, if you jumped off this cliff, Satan is trying to dismantle Jesus' identity. He's trying to get in his head and make him believe that one, he's not who he says he is, and two, his father's not going to protect him like he said he would. He's 40 days without food. And I know we laugh, but like it shows that he was hungry. Yeah, of course he was. He hasn't been eating for 40 days. Here's what I learned this week. When you are on the brink of starvation to death, starvation to death, nice. When you're on the brink of starvation, after you haven't had food for a long enough time, you kind of lose your appetite because your stomach shrinks. But when you're on the brink of dying from starvation, that hunger comes back because it's your body preparing and showing that you are on the absolute brink of dying. That temptation that God's not going to provide for me, that I'm not going to make it out of these 40 days, was real for Jesus. Taking that out of making rocks into bread was a real temptation. He was on the brink of dying because he was so hungry. You flip to the next little temptation that comes his way. He's at the top of the temple. He's been without people for 40 days. He's been in the wilderness. You're by yourself for a long enough time getting just blasted around by the conditions of the weather, it messes with you psychologically. So when he's at the top of the mountain, he's mere steps from falling to his death. And Satan says, hey, jump. Because if you're really God's son, if he's really a good dad, he'll take care of you. So jump. He's trying to attack his identity. Because when given the opportunity, identity will influence every single thing you do. It's the rock. It is the foundation of who we are and what comes of our life. Which is why I don't think it's a coincidence. This is Satan's best shot. This is, this is his prime opportunity to try and take Jesus out. And what does he choose to do? What's the best stuff he can throw at Jesus? An attack on his identity. So I've got a question for us this morning. What does that mean for us? 
if he throws that at Jesus, I don't think the model changes a whole lot for you and I, because as much as I want to say it, um, we're nowhere near to Jesus in terms of what we can do and what we can accomplish. So why would the game plan change? Now, here's what I will say. I hate, 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 another Christmas movie. I hate giving the enemy any time on this stage because he doesn't deserve it. We win. We win. God wins. So I hate talking about him. But here's what I do know. As much as I believe there is a God who is alive, who is active, who is for me, who is behind me, who is with me in every single circumstance, a God who is so good and amazing, as much as I know that, and as much as I know he is real, also know there's a real enemy who would love nothing more than to try and take me out, take out my family, take out our church. We don't have to be scared of it because we know that God wins. We know that God's more powerful. But here's what I know is that if we just bury our head in the sand and we don't realize that there's a real enemy who's trying to whisper lies into your life, to whisper lies into your identity, if we don't acknowledge that, we're ignorant. Because the enemy went after Jesus' identity. Many of you in here have a really good idea of who you are. You know what your life looks like. You know what you've been put on this earth to do. You're in it. You know you're a morning person and not a night person, or you're definitely not a morning person and definitely a night person. The night person people, what's up? We'll see you next Sunday. They slept in. But we love you, for real. I feel you. I struggled this morning. But we also know if we're a talker or a listener. We know if we're an organizer or a more of a, yeah, we'll get around to it kind of person. But more than that, we've undoubtedly been handled titles and roles in our life. I'm a senior executive. I'm an employee. I'm a manager. I'm a supervisor. I'm a chairman of my company. I'm an accountant. I'm a doctor. I'm whatever it is. We have these titles that define who we are. And when you walk out of your office or walk out of your place of employment, you're a coach. You're a board member. You're a dad. You're a mom. You're a grandparent. You're an aunt. You're an uncle. You're a president. You're a councilman. We have all of these things that make us who we are. And I understand you might see the futility of a 27-year-old trying to tell you how important it is to know who you are. Because you've had 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of life under your belt. And for that, I don't blame you. But here's what God showed me. Six months ago, I told a few people this. This message has been something that God's been speaking to me personally for six months. But I just knew I couldn't preach it yet. It was still in progress. Because quite frankly, I thought I had a really good grasp on my identity. I thought I had a really good idea of who I was. Until a few months back, I realized when I was reading this story, and God kind of began to kind of, peel back these layers that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks because I realize your identity is something that's given and not earned. Who you are is something that was given to you the moment you entered into this earth and not a single moment from what you did beyond that. I think it's so critical that we see in Matthew chapter 3 a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. 
with him I am well pleased. Timing is everything. Jesus knew he was the son of God. He knew he was loved. I want to highlight with him I am well pleased. Up till this point, everybody, Jesus had not done hardly anything ministerial-wise. This was just before he stepped into three years of healing people, bringing people back to life, teaching in the synagogues, doing all these really, really good things for God. That comes after this moment of baptism. So before he does anything to earn that love, to earn that approval, to earn that pleasement, God says to his son, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. It was six months ago, like I told you, I started to realize that my identity was more conditional and less fixed. Talk about Riley, what was saying, getting your priorities back in straight. So what happens, we start to fuse our identity to things. I am a dad. I am a son. I am a pastor. I am all these different things. And the problem with that is that when you fuse your identity to something that is changeable, your identity can go up and down. So as I always do, I try to keep it very real and very honest up here. But where God was revealing things to me six months ago is my identity was being fused, especially as a pastor. And if I could sum it up, it was one of those things where it's like really good things were happening. It was warm out. That was a great thing, right? This was six months ago. It was June. We were three months into being a lead pastor. Things were going well. People were getting baptized. People were saying yes to Jesus. People could say, I feel God again. I feel close to him. I had so many of you in this room who were affirming me and supporting me and saying, hey, we're behind you, buddy. Keep on going. Keep doing your thing. Things were going really, really well. But it's when I walked out the doors and I was laying in bed at night and all of the house was quiet. It rarely happens. It was quiet. And I would start to just recall things in my brain. Conversations from the day, things I was doing. I would have these ideas of all of a sudden, man, I really botched that conversation today. Why did I say that? Why did I not say this? And then I'll start to think, maybe I don't have enough vision to lead this church. Maybe I'm not leading my staff well enough. Maybe I need to have more vision. And then I started to think, if I don't start leading better, the church is going to crumple. The church's doors are going to close. And I'm going to be a failure. And all these things go down. If I could sum it up really easily, church, it kind of felt like, hey, if you're a real pastor, then why this? If, then. You see why this verse all of a sudden just blurted off the page for me? Because those things I was thinking, while there was validity to them, at the same time, they were lies. 99% true is still a lie. The enemy knew scripture. He knew what the Bible says, and he used it against Jesus. Hey, it's written that the angels will pick you up. It's 99% true, but the 1% is out of context. 99% true is still false. 
So when I, when I, as we go into this whole new year, the whole reason that six months ago I felt like God was stirring this message is because what happens, everybody, is we start to tie our identity, who we are, what gives us self-worth, what gives us happiness, all these things, we tie them to what we are externally. So when you're a really good dad, when you're a really good employee, when things are going really, really well, you feel good about yourself. You feel like you're doing a good job. But when things go south, when you fall back into some habits, when you fall back into some things you wish you didn't do, all of a sudden now you feel like dirty and scum and nasty, like you'll never amount to anything. And that's when the enemy pounces. Told you. Told you. Told you. Here's the good news, everybody. Your identity is something that is given and not earned. Before Jesus did anything, he says, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Before he did anything. So as we go into a brand new year, here's what I'll tell you. We've got New Year's resolutions. We've got goals. We've got things we want to be, things we want to do this year. I've got them myself. I've got goals for myself, for my family, for my dog. Hunting dog, that is. Not some weirdo. But I've got goals. Those are all good. But here's what we got to have and have an understanding of everybody. Is that good or bad, whatever happens to you this year, you are still a son or daughter of God. And I don't know if you believe that right now. You might not believe that, and that's totally fine. That might be something that happens this year. I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and tell you and force this on your throat that you need to believe this, but here's what I believe. In Psalm 139, it says, we were created in our inmost being in our mother's womb. Before we even entered the earth, God saw us and knew us and knew there was something to come of our life. Galatians chapter 1 says, we are a son and daughter of God and not a slave. We are an heir. I could go into the whole semantics of this, but basically what that means is we're not just some servants to God. We're his children. And as his children, he wants to love us. He wants to care for us. He wants to show us that we're not alone, that we're created for a purpose. Parents in the room, you get this more than anybody else. Your kid's going to do some really stupid things, things that make you just want to like bang your head on the wall. Today, Probably. But whether they are doing something amazing that makes you want to cry because you're so proud or whether they are doing something that makes you want to you still love them. You still are completely in love with them and cannot imagine life without them. Your Heavenly Father sees you the same way. Whether you are battling an addiction that is knocking you in your rear end over and over and over and over again, or whether you're on the corner doing some amazing charity work, God loves you the same. Because that amount is so deep and so strong. So if I could challenge you as you go into a brand new year, as we go into a brand new year of resolutions and goals and things we want to see, things we want to be, those are all really good, but here's my challenge to you. We have to operate from being approved of and not striving to, to seek approval. God already approves of you. He already sees you. He's already proud of you. He loves you. 
So quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to do enough good things and, and stop trying to do enough bad things to try and make God love you because you can't earn it. He already just gives it. He loves you. He cares for you. He sees you. And when you operate from that fact, you live different. You live way different. Because if I can tie this thing full circle, here's what was happening. When I felt like I wasn't being a good pastor, and when I felt like I was feeling like I'm not a good enough leader, I'm not a good enough thing, all these lies that started coming, here's the thing. Internally, I tried to like kind of push those lies away. Those are lies, those are lies, those are lies. But when you start to believe them, you start to live different. Your identity impacts how you live. So when I was seeing myself as a lesser leader, I led with less conviction, with less boldness. And if I can be really honest, I was less patient with my kids. I was less mentally present at home with my wife because I was just trying to fight and fight and fight and fight and fight these lies. Until God hit me between the eyes and said, Derek, my son, love you. I'm pleased with you. Whether your church grows to 2,000 or whether you close the doors, it doesn't change how I feel about you. And when you operate from that, instead of trying to feel like you need to hold everything together, there's a freedom in your life that allows you to be amazing. So church, this morning, my prayer for you is that you know how loved you are. This is not some, God loves you, sentiment. This is a genuine fact that he wants to do something special in your life. Riley said it best. I believe this year is a year for so many of us in this room that is like a banner year, 2023. Things we look at that we desperately want to see, things that change the trajectory of our life for the next 10, 15, 20 years happen this year. And here's the cool part. I believe there are people not in this room right now that have never been in this room before. They're gonna experience that same thing. They're gonna walk in and see a bunch of God-loving people who are just excited to be here and believing God for more. Before we do any of it, before we try and work towards anything, we need to know who we are. Because trying to figure out who you are by doing is never going to get you anywhere. I hate to say it, but losing 40 pounds to be skinnier is not going to make you feel good about yourself. Losing 40 pounds and being healthier, that's great. That's awesome. But if you're doing it so that you feel different and you see yourself differently, it's not who you are. It's not your identity. If your goal for this year is to, is to, is to do something less or do something more, that's really good. But let the motivation not be doing this to be something. Do it to better yourself. It might seem like semantics, but the whole idea is that you don't need to do anything to be approved of. You're already approved of. So live it out. Walk out these doors with your head held high, knowing you're not just fighting your battles alone. You got God on your side. So here's what I would challenge you with. You notice Jesus' response for always, it's written. Satan whispered lies and threw lies in his face. And Jesus' response was always, it's written. Those are Bible verses that he knew, truth of who God was. 
It can be hard to know what truth is when you're just going through the motions of life. Which is why you're reading the Bible, reading the truth is so, so important. So for those of you who are really wanting to get into the word more this year, maybe you're not on that spot yet, that's okay. We've got a lot of good on-ramps this year for you. If you're newer to the faith, if you're newer, those are all things that are coming. But I think there are people in this room who are going, I want to read my Bible more this year. It's on my resolution. We got some really cool plans out there. Go visit Riley. He'll get you some. But I can promise you this. If you get into your word this year, your external might not change. But your internal might. Your situation might not change, but your perspective of it will. Because when you know the truth of what God says, you live different. So will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that we're not defined by our success. We're not defined by our failure. We're not defined by what other people say about us. We're not defined by what we tell ourselves. We're defined by you. And even if we are physically failing in every sense of the word in our life, there's one area that we're not. And it's being your son or your daughter. God, for those in this room who just feel berated in their life by negativity, being torn down, Father, I pray that today they would just know how much they're loved. You see them, you hear them. When they're praying out, calling out to you, their prayers don't hit the ceiling and come back down. They go right into your ears and you hear them. So God, today I pray for everyone in this room for those who want to just make things right with you. Maybe maybe they've just fallen off, gotten away from who you are. They've been running away from you. They've been running to other things. God, I just pray that those in this room would know it's not a matter of having to come crawling back on our knees. But God, like the prodigal son, as we come back to you, you run out to us and embrace us and hold us tight. May they just know that they're loved. They can pick up right where they left off, all by saying, Jesus, would you forgive me? And you're there. God, I know you're not done yet. I know 2023 is a year that is going to be amazing. There will be hardship, no doubt. But you're going to show us some really, really cool things. So God, today, would we walk out of these doors knowing you are loved, knowing you're with us, you're behind us, we're not alone because you're right here with us, God. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.